I'm Interested with Mike Greenberg is presented by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Grady back with you on I'm Interested and what a terrific week this is going to be. One of the genuine legends of the sports broadcasting world is my guest this week, the one and only Marv Albert, who has done pretty much everything in sports and done pretty much every sport for the last 50 years But we will focus the overwhelming um, majority of this conversation on the NBA because I believe Marv Albert is as good broadcasting basketball as anyone has ever been at broadcasting anything. And as I say to him at the beginning of the interview, which you'll hear in a moment, when I close my eyes and think about what basketball sounds like, it sounds like Marv Albert's voice. So I'm looking forward to this very much. and, And I have been opening some of these podcasts with little personal stories And the one that jumps immediately to mind here is in the late 90s when I was covering the Bulls and traveling around the country, the very first time that my then-girlfriend, now wife, Stacy, ever came with me, we went on a trip to Orlando. The Bulls were playing the Magic in the conference finals, a series the Bulls would wind up sweeping and then go on to win the championship. And that led to the breakup of Shaq in Orlando and everything else. But I'll never forget that my wife, Stacy came with me again. She wasn't my wife at this time. And she came with me on this trip. And I remember that we were at the hotel and just sort of relaxing by the pool one afternoon during the series. And I looked over and I saw the whole crew from NBC was there. It was Marv and it was Bob Costas and it was um, Ahmad Rashad and Hannah Storm, if I remember correctly, and, and, and whoever else. I, they, they were the crew on, on NBC Sports, of course, and they were so unbelievably good on the NBA. But I remember turning to my, uh, again, my then-girlfriend and saying, see them sitting over there? That, that's where I want to be. I, I want to be one of them. I, I want to be, by the time we're done here, Um, people are going to be looking over at the section of the pool where I'm sitting, and they're going to say, look, there's that guy, there's that guy, because everyone was so excited that they were all there. Um, And that's something I've never forgotten. And Marv has been a not only a a mentor, but a gentleman to me in so many different ways, and I've gotten to know his son a little bit, Kenny, over the years, and I'll bring that up in the podcast. So um, it is my real distinct pleasure and honor to have Marv Albert with me on I'm Interested Today, and we will get to him right after this word. And without further ado, here is the one, the only, the marvelous Marv Albert in 3-2-1. What I have found myself thinking about a lot lately is the way sports sound. You know, I, I said this last week when I had the, in, the opportunity to interview Vin Scully for the first time in my career, that all of us who've ever been to a baseball game, we know the way baseball looks, we know the way baseball feels we know the way baseball smells if you've ever been to a ballpark you know that smell but for each of us baseball sounds a little bit different and for generations and generations and generations in los angeles baseball sounds like vin scully's voice well i can tell you that when i think of basketball basketball sounds like marv albert's voice i grew up in new york city in the 70s And I cannot count the number of nights that I spent watching the New York Knicks on Channel 9 in those days. Um, And Marv Albert was the voice of the Knicks. And from the moment I figured out I wasn't going to someday be Walt Frazier, I thought the best person I might otherwise be was Marv Albert. And so it is my privilege to welcome 
Marv Albert to this podcast. I'm interested. Marv, thank you so much for the time. I hope that you're well through all of this madness, and I appreciate you spending a few minutes with me here. Mike, all is well. Thank you for the nice words. And, uh, yeah, those are uh, very good memories, particularly for Nick fans in the, in the, in the 70s. Well, unfortunately, I don't remember the good ones. Um, I came along a little too late to remember those. So the memories I have, the Nick teams I grew up with in the 70s, Marv, and this is not where I intend to start this interview, but the Larry Demick, Lonnie Shelton, yes. um, Toby <laughs> right, Knight, right. Glenn Gondrasek Knicks are the Knicks that I grew up with. I just missed Frazier and Reed and DeBusher and Bradley and all of them. But you, of course did not and and your legendary call of here comes willis in game seven of the 1970 finals that's where i wanted to begin this conversation the 1970 new york knicks i would say are the most beloved sports team in new york's history talk to me about those teams and, and looking back on them 50 years later what you think they were and what you think they mean today people who were around to see the 6970 uh Knicks uh we'll, we'll never forget that team it was a very uh, special group when you think about the Busher and Bradley and uh Willis and Clyde and Barnett and uh the sixth man Mike Reardon who Red Holzman would utilize to as they said in those days give a foul the rules were a, a bit different but it was such a smart team uh the passing was was terrific uh, they were all very, very intelligent players. Uh, they were colorful guys like, like Clyde and, of course, Bill Bradley, who was uh, out of Princeton and Oxford, and the Busher had come over from uh, Detroit, and Barnett with his fallback baby uh, jumper. They started that season at 23-1. and This is the previous year they had gotten the Busher in a deal for Walt Bellamy, who was a, uh, a setter, and Howard Colmives, names you probably are familiar with in the playoffs they they roared through Baltimore and Milwaukee and uh in the finals it was the Los Angeles Lakers who had a a potent lineup at least in name but uh, were not the same as they had been several years ago before that and uh it was so dramatic with Willis Reed was not supposed to play in game 7 with the series tied at 3 because of a thigh injury came out at the last minute uh, with the Lakers still warming up, and I, I recall, I did that game on radio, and I can recall the Lakers stopped and stared. They couldn't believe Willis was going to play. Although he had told me on the pregame show he had taken a shot in the thigh where he had suffered the injury, and he said, no question, I'll be out there, I'll play. And usually when athletes say it, you don't necessarily believe them, but he did come out at the last moment, hit his first two jump shots as the crowd went. It was the loudest garden crowd I had ever, ever heard. And uh, as it turns out, the underrated player on that game was Walt Frazier, who was just sensational. He had the type of game that Jimmy Butler had the other night. In fact, Butler is second in the category of accumulating the most points through uh for his team for points and assists to Clyde. Jerry West is also on that list. And uh, they were beloved in New York, and the celebrities came out, you know, from Robert Redford to Barbara Streisand, Woody Allen, of course. They were all there, you know, at courtside. 
uh, and uh, they were just uh, a team. It was a style of play, and I think it, it uh, certainly helped uh, popularize basketball, uh, not only in New York but several other cities. Until it then hit the down hit the downside until Magic and Bird came along, and then of course Jordan and etc. The huge leap in popularity of the sport comes after the 79 NCAA tournament where Magic and Larry meet for the championship, Michigan State and Indiana State, and into the NBA they come. And in a, I think what for the NBA will always be extraordinarily good fortune, one of them winds up on the legendary franchise out west, the Lakers. The other winds up on the legendary franchise of the east, the Celtics. And that which had always been the great rivalry in the NBA is taken to a whole new level. So looking back on it now, how would you describe the impact as one who was there and as close to it as anybody I know, the impact that those two guys had on the sport? Well, they, they saved the league because uh, at the time the NBA was going through uh, a very difficult period of, of drug problems. The fact that uh, Bird and Magic came in at the same time off what their exploits were at uh, in college just turned things around uh, for the league. And the fact that they both ended up with uh, teams that uh, became the best franchises in the league, the Boston Celtics and the uh, L.A. Lakers, and they had this wonderful rivalry and became very good friends uh, after the rivalry to this day. Um, it tells you a little bit about uh, the two guys. But I, I think that saved the league at that time. And uh, then when you went into the 90s, you had Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Uh, I, I've always felt, whatever the sport, you need a really good team. I, I know a lot of people like to see different teams win every, every year. But I think if you have a dynasty, be it the Chicago Bulls, the Boston Celtics, the L.A. Lakers, the Golden State Warriors in recent times, uh, I, I think it really helps in terms of interest, television ratings. Either people love them or people want to see them get beat. And, you know, they, they'll hate them uh, if uh, they're not rooting for that particular team. So uh, I think that's all, you know, part of uh, the marketing which becomes successful when you have a, uh, a top team. No question. And when you talk about marketing, we talk about another of the genius architects of the sport and one whom we lost this year. So sadly, at the very beginning of this year, when we lost David Stern, um, what was your relationship like with Stern? It was uh, terrific. Uh, he, he's a New York guy. He uh, would be sitting up in the, uh, the blue seats of the garden, which are, you know, the top speeds as when he was growing up. So he followed the Knicks closely, although that had uh, no effect on his, uh, you know, on running the league. But uh, he, he was such a smart guy. He was like, you would say, the smartest, the smartest guy in the room, you know, which is a phrase that's often used. But mm -hmm. he was able to handle, you know, owners uh, are, not, are not easy in terms of relationships. I mean, these are all hugely successful people who, you know, have their own ideas. Some may not even know the sport that they're dealing with. And uh, David had a way, uh, as Adam Silver does too, of uh, just having great relationships and being able to get things done. Uh, plus, he had uh, ideas that were off the chart. 
as is the case with uh, uh, Adam these days. But uh, e- even the concept of the dream team, which uh, you know just changed the game from a global point of view. As, as it turns out, uh, the FIBA people were sold on it at one time even more so than uh, than David, and I think that it completely changed uh, the just the whole scene in terms of the NBA when you look at all the international players that are now, uh, and, and they're really, uh, most of them are very good who get to the NBA. Uh, and it all happened because of what took place in 1992 in Barcelona. No question. But with Stern, I knew him only a little, not, not nearly as well, of course, as you did. But what I remember in many conversations with him was that he was truly a fan, that, that he could recall... And, and those Knicks that we began this conversation talking about were the team that he loved. He could recall moments in regular season games, you know, 30, 40 years later as though they had just happened. And I think that's an important part of it. I think people remember Stern as a marketing genius, which he was, and as a tough guy, which of course he was. But he was also a huge fan of the game itself. And I think that made a difference, too. He also had a great sense of humor, which mm-hmm. which was kind of what would be called a sarcastic New York sense of humor, mm-hmm. but uh, it, uh, he wore that well. And you mentioned the knowledge that he had. We used to play initials. For example, the name you uh, made reference to at the start, Larry Demick. If I said mm-hmm. LD, he'd get it without clues. You know, huh. I mean, that's the way he was. He, he really did follow the game uh, closely and was on it all the time. You know, he, 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 wouldn't be one of these uh, commissioners who, you know, would not be watching his sport all the time. And there have been some. Uh, but uh, if you quizzed him the next day on what might have happened the night before, he'd be right on it. Uh, and, uh, you know, that it's so important for the league. I mean, he took it to uh, just a, a, another step in terms of the success that they've had uh, these days. I want to get to a bunch more basketball here, but I'll take a brief interlude from that and just talk a little broadcasting with you if I could. So you, as I listen to you talk here, your delivery is so, um, it's so identifiable. It's so singular. I find it very hard for myself not to imitate it as I'm, as I'm talking to you because <laughs> it just sort of comes out. When did you start with the pauses? Like the way you will talk every now and again, and then you'll continue like that. Is that something you did consciously at the beginning of your career? How, how did that begin? Well, I, w- I was a great fan of a couple of broadcasters when I was growing up uh, in New York, and I knew from the third grade on I wanted to be a, a sportscaster. Uh, so I followed Marty Glickman, who did the Knicks mm-hmm. and the Giants, uh, did all the top uh, teams in New York at one time, even was the race caller at Yonkers Raceway for a while. There was a broadcaster by the name of Les Kiter, who has done a lot of championship fights and did uh, a lot of basketball, including uh, the Knicks. I loved listening to Vin Scully. I was a Dodger fan. But I, I had the good fortune of, A, working for the Dodgers as an office boy when I was, uh, was a year before they left so I was in high school, and also I got to know Marty, who became a very good friend of mine and who was very helpful in my career. He, like 
uh, like me, went to Syracuse, or I, like him, ended up going mm-hmm. to Syracuse, the Newhouse School of Journalism and uh, Broadcasting. And uh, I got to know him because there was a series called The High School Game of the Week, which was popular at one time uh, in the New York area. And I ended up, because I was a writer for my school paper, Abraham Lincoln High School in Brooklyn, that uh, they were looking for a researcher. And it was the beginning of the the High School Game of the Week series, and they hired me. And that's how I really got to know Marty. And then I got my first job when he had an opening at WCBS Radio. And I was uh, just out of college, really. And I ended up doing some air work. Actually, in Syracuse, I was uh, not only a sportscaster, in fact, uh, I was a disc jockey, uh, a rock and roll disc jockey at uh, a station, WOLF in Syracuse, and uh, even did one year of minor league baseball, the Syracuse Chiefs. So he brought me into New York, and uh, I was his writer, and I was his backup announcer at CBS, and he missed several Knicks and Ranger games, and I got a ridiculous break at, like, at the age of 20, 21, uh, doing games on uh, on CBS. And uh, that led eventually to my doing Knicks and Rangers on another station in New York, WHN and then WNBC. And the style developed at first when I was just starting out. I would walk around the house sounding like Marty Lickman. I mean, it was probably very annoying to my parents because I had been around him so much. And then when I started doing games, and I always, even as a kid, I would tape games off the television. And I would, on my shortwave radio, would pick up a lot of, I was a big hockey fan. We played a lot of street hockey in those days. I would listen to some of the great hockey announcers like Foster Hewitt of the Toronto Maple Leafs and Danny Gallivan of the Montreal Canadiens. And just by listening, you don't want to uh, mimic them, but I would develop my own style on on my tape recorder, and it just uh, evolved over the years. I ended up doing the Knicks and the Rangers at a young age, and uh, it also, I always felt that uh, you had to be objective, and there should be a bit of a sense of humor, and that helped by doing uh, the... uh, 6 and 11 at Channel 4 in New York, WNBC-TV, where we did a lot of interviews on set, and it was kind of a uh, you know, a lively situation, so the sense of humor just cre- creeped into my style sometimes. Hmm. And uh, that's basically how it, how it developed, uh, being able to uh, do as many games as I did, primarily on my tape recorder at the start, and, uh, you know, it wasn't like I was uh, copying anyone, but, uh, you know, I, I was, I had that Marty Glickman sound at first and uh, lost it by doing as many games as I did. There are so many things you've just said that I want to react to. The first is that Marty Glickman was my father's favorite announcer, and whenever I would tell him that I wanted to be Marv Albert, he would say, well, you realize Marv Albert is just imitating Marty Glickman. That was my father. You'll have to excuse him. (laughs) He's no longer with us. But he loved Marty Glickman, and and many people don't... I don't even know how many people today know who Marty Glickman was, but he was uh, an Olympic track athlete. He ran with Jesse Owens, right? right? Yeah, in fact, there was an excellent 
a documentary that HBO did uh, a couple of years ago on Marty, and uh, it, it dealt with his going to uh, Berlin for the Olympics in '36, and I had had great discussions with him about this because he was still, um, uh, as you can imagine, upset. He, he he wasn't allowed to run because Hitler had frowned upon a uh, Jewish athlete winning. As Marty used to tell me, if I had run in the relay with Jesse as a lead man, I would have had a gold medal. You know, mm. so he was scheduled and he was pulled out at the last at the last moment, and uh, it was a, just a terrific uh, documentary on Marty. And, and through Marty, I was able to uh, spend time with Jesse Owens, which was uh, you know, a wonderful experience, uh, because they, they remained close uh, right until, uh, uh, I would say, the last days of, uh, of Jesse. But yes, your father w- uh, was right on it. Uh, I mean, Marty set the style and the tone for covering basketball on the radio. He developed so many of the phrases. Uh, you know, the ball comes out of the backcourt to the right sideline, right corner, down the lane, all that, all that kind of stuff. It, it all came from Marty. So uh, I know that people who are aware of him or broadcasters who uh, grew up in his era, uh, will give him full credit, you know, for all he did in terms of uh, developing sportscasting. Well, and now that you've said that, I have to ask you about Jesse Owens. I did not know about that relationship, but we, in the world in which we live today, where social justice has been such an incredibly um, front and center subject within the world of sports, I did a, a whole special on ESPN this summer about that. And one of the stories that we told was was Jesse Owens when he came back from the Olympics, he said that what what hurt him the most was coming back here and not being invited to the White House to shake the president's hand. That that bothered him more than anything that happened to him in Hitler's Germany. Yeah. Um, and so, so I just love to hear from you. I, I don't know much about him as a person. What was Jesse Owens like as a as a person? He was such a, a, a gentleman, and uh, you could talk anything with him. You know, and I used to love to talk uh, with Marty and Jesse about you know, the experience uh, in the Olympics, uh, particularly as as I went on to do, you know, four or five Olympic uh, competitions. Uh, He he was just a nice, you know, a a really nice person. And, uh, you know, as it turns out, Jackie Robinson's brother was on that Olympic team also. He he Mm. was a a track man. But uh, that's an aside. but I, I couldn't tell you anything specifically about Jesse, as, except the fact that he was really good company and, you know, was a great s- storyteller. And uh, he and Marty had this wonderful relationship. I, I didn't realize what you just told me, though, that uh, he was not invited to the White House. That's incredible. Yeah, he, he spoke of that. And that was in the research that I did. Anyway, he's he's one of the legendary figures that I think has come back to a degree of prominence based upon the the tenor of the conversation we've been having of late. Then to go back and react to another of the things you said, when you talk about the sense of humor, I think that is one of the things that attracted so many of your fans like me to your work. And, and I have many said, I used to host a show called Mike and Mike for many years. And one of the sure. biggest things that ever happened to us was when David Letterman started putting us on his show. 
we, we had a show and we were, we were starting to become popular. We were starting to become a little bit well-known and then David Letterman started having us on. And that, I think that more than anything else, um, that, that led more than anything else to whatever it is we ultimately became. What, what, tell me about how you first started going on with him because your appearances on Letterman all those years at NBC were the stuff of legend. <laughs> uh, Dave would laugh if you said that, but yeah, uh, it, it was a great experience. And it really started because when I was doing the uh, local sports at uh, NBC New York, Dave's uh, studio was right across from us. So uh, it, it was great at first. You know, you'd see all these uh, guests, well-known people, you know, in the hall who would just be going across to the makeup room. Uh, and so I, I got to know Dave, and he, he's a, a huge sports fan and uh, terrific guy. I remember I remember you and, and uh, Mike being on, on the show several times. You guys were good. Um but uh, he saw that I was doing what I call the wild and the wacky, which would be <laughs> blooper plays uh, in the studio every month in which, you know, the camera people and the on-air people would laugh and be giggles and all that stuff. And he said to me, you know, that would be great with a live studio audience. And he, he was right. So he started putting me on. And uh, we had a really nice relationship and he would always as as he put it if they were short of a guest he would take me out of the closet and put me you know <laughs> put me uh, on on a show i'd be waiting uh in a, a special area as a standby guest so uh i would do bits with him too he'd always have me do uh various crazy stuff i'd even every uh, for a while on thanksgiving uh, as it turned out, I'd have Nick Pacer games in Indianapolis, and his mom lived there. So uh, we'd always arrange to tape something with his mom at Dave's former house in Indianapolis, where she'd be uh, making a turkey and pies. He'd have to, he'd have to guess what kind of pie <laughs> that uh, she had made. Uh, deep stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, there were a lot of appearances uh, I even once was the, uh, I think, Alan Coulter, who was the uh, the announcer who brought on the show, and, you know, did he did various bits, too. He was very funny. But one mm -hmm. time he got caught in a snowstorm, and, of course, I'm in the building because I'm doing sports, so he had me do the, uh, you know, bring the show on. And I, was, I got such a kick out of that. Uh, I mean, there were so many uh, great moments uh, in my life that, and I was able to share by uh, uh, doing the show and meeting so many of his guests. It was just, uh, you know, it was a great experience. It, it was, it was um, like life changing for, for me and for Mike and me as our, as a team. And I also recall that um, meeting him for the first time because he's someone that I had been watching since I was a kid. It was, it was awe inspiring. He was that kind of person in my life. Anyway, the other thing that it makes me think of as you talk is I wonder if sometimes if these things are written or if they just come out of your mouth. So when I was telling people that I was having you on the podcast, one of our, one of the coordinating producer of my TV show in the mornings now get up, said to me, you have to ask Marv the funniest Marv line ever. They're going to a commercial on a game one time and there's a scenic 
and there's a shot they have outside the garden of a dog with a cigarette in its mouth. And Marv, as they yeah. go to the break, says, there's nothing more shocking than a dog who smokes. And I can hear you saying it. And like, are those things, is that just off the cuff or do, are those things ever planned? No, how, off, how does that? Yeah, that was off the cuff. It was an NBC game, actually, because uh, Bob Costas, um, who's a good friend and who we worked together for so many years, and he was in the studio at the time, but he. He does a great impersonation of that. That's his go-to story. I I think it was something like, you hate to see a dog smoking. Uh, But, uh, yeah, that's one of uh, Bob's Bob's favorites. Uh, No, that just just came. You you try not to be scripted. I mean, I certainly have written things down that I – you know, it might be appropriate during a game, but uh, it, it's usually off off the cuff. And I think it's always so important as if you're doing play-by-play as to who your broadcast partner is. Uh, and I've been fortunate because like, I, I did work eight years with Steve Kerr, uh, which was, uh, was four, and then he went to the Phoenix Suns as a general manager and then came back and then took the job with the uh, Warriors, which has turned out pretty well for Steve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was like the perfect person, along with the czar, Mike Fratello, who was a walking punchline. You know, he, uh, uh, I mean, you just, you can't, it's hard to be serious with him. And you realize this is a, uh, this is someone who was an NBA coach and very successful. He's right up there in terms of victories in his day, you know, his days with the Atlanta Hawks, where he had Dominique Wilkins and uh, a number of very good Cleveland teams. He had that one good year in Memphis, but he's extremely annoying, you know, on and <laughs> off the air. So you can't. Everybody kills him. You just can't. How about, and he does. He'll do stupid things, you know, uh, to bother people. Like Jeff Van Gundy was with us. Uh, for a while when he first started broadcasting, and Jeff is terrific, you know, mm-hmm. um, he'd hide his blazer, you know, up in a shower or something. I mean, <laughs> you know, ridiculous stuff. Uh, or uh, with with Steve Kerr when he uh, would join us as, in a trio uh, on the air, he he would pull pranks, and, and we'd get back at him in ways which would really get him upset. And mm-hmm. and I always felt you could not get him upset enough. So, uh, in Steve's case, he has a great sense of humor, as we've seen, where he's gotten so much exposure. Also, you know, as head coach of the Warriors, and he—that's what makes him not the sense of humor, but what makes him such a good coach. Aside from his knowledge and the fact that he, you know, is a student of Greg Popovich, who we played for, and Phil Jackson, who we played for, and Lute Olson, who we played for in Arizona. Uh, he has excellent relationships with people. And it's not easy to win a championship, even if you have all those stars. And it's a complicated situation when you have these uh, different personalities, and he is able to handle it you know, so well. I mean, they'll be screaming back and forth, be between uh, Steve and Draymond Green, 
But Draymond mm-hmm. is smart enough to know. It just, you know, this happens and it goes away, and Steve feels the same way. It's like it never happened, you know, later in the day. Uh, but he, he's just so good at handling people and is a, a spectacular coach. But he, he his sense of humor was very, very important uh, for me. We were able to work together, and, you know, who go right at me. Uh, Reggie Miller and Chris Webber also have that type of sense of humor. You know, not as not as whacked as, uh, like, the czar, but <laughs> um, fortunately. Whatever sport I yeah. was doing, even with hockey, there was a guy named Sal Messina who oh, sure. was very good on the air. He's a, a former backup goaltender. So, uh, actually would be a, a backup in the days where teams would not carry backup goaltenders. It would usually be someone who was doing uh, in the penalty box uh, or an official score, but they had played, played hockey, like Sal had played minor league hockey. So I gave him the nickname Red Light, meaning that the mm-hmm. red light is usually on behind Sal when he's in goal, <laughs> which meant that someone had scored on him. Uh, but he was very funny. It was great to deal with. With uh, with Sal too. Marv Albert is with me here. I have to let you go soon, so I have two more things I need to ask you. Uh, as you and I are recording this conversation, LeBron James is getting set to most likely win his fourth NBA championship. Um, we will see by the time this podcast, if anyone is listening to it, he, he most likely will have won unless the Heat have come back to win, in which case we'll try and edit this part of the conversation out. Um, but how would you, there, the, people love to debate the greatness of players relative to others. H- how would you characterize LeBron James' place in the, in the pantheon of the sport going back as far as you do? Well, he's among the top two, three, all time. I mean, usually it's a comparison between Michael uh, Jordan and uh, and LeBron. And it's so hard to compare players from different eras because of the difference in the rules, the way they're calling fouls, and the way they did not call fouls uh, in Michael's era as frequently as they do now with physical play. I think if Michael played today, and he did average over 30 points a game for his career, which is pretty incredible, uh, I, I, I would think he'd average, if he, depending on how many minutes he'd have to play, uh, 35 to 40 a game under, mm-hmm. under the rules today because he'd have clear paths on his drive. He would have developed his three-point shot, which you know he hardly did use. People remember the six he hit in a half against the uh, Portland uh, Trailblazers back in 90, 1992 finals. And that was unusual, as he admitted, and he had that shrug at the end of it looking over, you know, to the side. Uh, but I think that his defense was also off the charts. LeBron can turn it on and off with defense. Uh, LeBron is will go down as one of the all-time greats, obviously, alongside Michael, and it'll always be an argument. And people seem to just measure it by by championships. And, uh, I mean, LeBron, as you say, will be on the way to his uh, fourth. Michael won six, but he had uh, two runs of three in a row, and he won six out of six, which is amazing. 
And then what do you do with some of the players from the past? How can you compare a setter like uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Bill Russell or even Larry Bird's in the discussion or Magic Johnson? But I don't see how you can compare, you know, different position players. So if it's, you're talking strictly Michael and LeBron, it's very tough because of the different uh, errors. And, uh, you know, how do you get greater than either one of those? I'm with you. It's a fun conversation, and ultimately it usually leads nowhere, but it's still worth doing. That's the way I look at it. One <laughs> last thing. <laughs> one last thing. Um, as I talk to you, I, I, I sit here thinking of my father because of how much uh, we, I grew up, you know, watching games with my dad and listening to your voice. And it still reminds me of that. And it makes me think what it must be like for you now, as often as you have the opportunity to, to turn on a television or a radio and watch your son, Kenny do games. And he's so good. And for those listening in New York, you hear him doing Ranger games. And of course he does NFL games. Uh, every single weekend and, and so many other things. I know him only a little bit, but he's a terrific guy. And I just wonder what it is like for you as one of the, the legends in, in this industry to now be able to watch your son have as much success as he is having following in your footsteps. Well, I, I'm so proud of him as I am of, you know, all my kids and grandkids. But he, in fact, uh, a couple of my grandkids say they want to be sportscasters. They've been doing games off tape, you know, off the television on tape. It's mm-hmm. sad. It's everywhere. Um, <laughs> but uh, Kenny, as a kid, did the same thing because I had a fictitious radio sh- station, which was my initials, WMPA. He does the same thing. KGA, his middle name is Gary. So he did the same and uh, also was industrious enough to get jobs, either as interns for, for teams or, you know, all by himself. Uh, through college, he did a lot of broadcasting at the school station at NYU. He, he also played hockey, so he really knows the game well, played hockey at NYU. Uh, but he got a, a job on his own with the Baltimore Skipjacks of the American Hockey League, uh, for several years. In fact, the coach was Barry Trotz, who ended up mm. as winning the Stanley Cup with uh, Washington and now uh, head coach of the Islanders. So, um, in fact, they were roommates together for a while. Teams would like to save money, so they uh, so Barry had the uh, had to be shoved in with the with the young broadcaster, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, he has developed into, uh, you know, I think a terrific announcer. Uh, he was doing the NHL games in the bubble up in uh, Edmonton. And before that, he was doing hockey games off the big monitor when the Rangers finished the season, which is very tough, you know, doing hockey off, off a monitor. You could do basketball, baseball, even football uh, off a monitor, but hockey is impossible. And he's, you know, such a low-key kid, and it's he's not a kid anymore, but a low-key individual. Uh, and uh, it's just great to watch. You know, tune in and check him out and uh, get a big kick out of it. Marv, I, I, I can't tell you what a kick I get out of this conversation. I, I have genuinely admired you all of my life. I grew up wanting to be you. Um, and it is a pleasure to have this chance to talk. I, I wish you and your family nothing but health and 
safety through uh, the madness that is this time that we're living in. And I hope when we come out the other side of it, I can buy you a cup of coffee or, or something more interesting than that someday. Uh, but it, it really, <laughs> it's my pleasure. Thank you for taking this time. Mike, thanks so much. I, I, I always enjoyed your work too. It's uh uh, it's a pleasure. When, I, when I'm up early, I do watch Get Up, and uh, I've, uh, you know, always enjoyed the intelligence that you bring to your observations of each sport. So thank you very much. My thanks again to Marv Albert for spending this time with me, and my thanks to you for spending this time with me. And I'll ask you again if you like these sorts of long form interviews and you would like. Uh, me to continue doing this, then there's a very simple way you can send me that message. If you would subscribe to this podcast and then give us a rating and a review, um, I will see that. And that will make a big difference. We have a few more weeks of this season to go. And then we'll have to make a decision whether we want to continue. And a big part of that, in fact, the only part of that will be to decide if you want me to keep doing it. If there's an audience for this, if you're interested in this kind of long-form podcast, long-form interview podcast, then I will definitely continue to do it. So again, please subscribe to and rate and review this podcast. I'm interested. Let me know what you think, and we'll continue to do it here. My thanks again to Marv Albert. My thanks to you, and I'll see you next week. I'm Mike Greenberg, and this is I'm Interested.